Well, hi, folks. This is Jack Spirko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Thursday, February the 1st, 2024. I'm about to hit you with something like a door in the face that I haven't done for a while, and I digress. I should have been hitting you with this a lot recently, and I haven't done it for months. Tick, talk, tick, talk. The clock ticks for us all. Life is not a sliding scale. If you are not working your way toward more self-sufficiency, self-reliance, independence, and liberty, and mental sovereignty, then life is pushing you in the other direction. Because it isn't just all of the, the things that we don't get done. If we are not working on clarity of mind... On a daily basis, there is propaganda everywhere. In fact, when we get to my anchor segment for the expert counsel show today, which is what we have, we're gonna we're gonna talk about a piece of propaganda that is so blatantly stupid, and it's about gardening of all things. Your garden is warming up the planet. You know, you think you're gonna help global warming by putting a garden? No, no, no. You need to eat the commercial food that's po- sp- spray with poisons and grow with GMOs because that's better for the environment. It's so pathetic. There's, it's a Yahoo News article. There's 30 comments on it that they haven't deleted, because I know they've deleted a shitload of comments, because people said they did. Not one of them bought it. But why would you put something out this blazingly stupid? Because you know a, a shitload of people who will never comment on it, who won't even read it, will just read the headline and go, oh gee, gardens are bad. That's how bad the propaganda is being. So the sliding scale of life... And pushing you backwards is not just about whether or not you're making sure that you're ready for a disaster, you're making sure that you're financially stable, you're building something like a business or some alternative income stream in your life, that you are growing your own food, etc. It's also about keeping mental clarity. So I don't think it'll be a big surprise when I tell you who we're going to start out with today. Ron Paul and Liberty Highlights, who always leads off our, Friday, our Thursday shows. Ron Paul has for you, U.S. troops should not be tripwires for war. I'll let Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams explain that. And then, Dr. Paul, again, this time with Chris Rossini, will talk about how it's time to annul the marriage between bank and state. I love that they use the word annulment. You know, divorce is like, we're done with each other, but the marriage... Annulment's like, we have erased it. It's like it never occurred. Because it should have been there. It was the wrong thing in the first place. It wasn't that we fell out. It's that this was an unholy alliance to begin with. So we'll talk about that. I'll have a little thing for both of those, including something I wrote this morning that ironically fits Dr. Paul's first segment very, very perfectly. And it was not intended. It just worked out that way. Joel Riles will talk about teaching a dog to do something all dogs love to do, if you teach them how to do it anyway, play fetch. And play fetch where you don't run around going, hey, come back here, how to actually get the dog to bring the thing back to you. Nicole Sauce will talk about storing flour long term. Jeff Lawton will talk about shade gardens and cover crops. Doc Bones will talk about head lice in a grid down situation. And I have a little soldier hack for you on the head. It has nothing to do with head lice directly, but it has to do with the medicated shampoo that you use to get rid of head lice. And this is something I don't know if I've, in, 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 in 15 and a half years now, I don't know if I've ever told you guys, but if I have never said this on air before, I am remiss for not having told you this, because this can be extremely valuable to you if you're going to go spend a lot of time in the woods. I'll leave it at that. 
And next up, I will then talk about this ridiculous vitriol vomit of climate alarmism propaganda. And, and what I'm hoping, because you can tell by the comments on this article, basically saying shame, shame, shame to the author that published it, that some of the people making these comments that are like, you are a lying piece of filth, they're all in. They're all in on climate change is real, and it's all because of CO2, but this is bullshit. So both sides in that debate seem to realize that this is propaganda. But I will ask you, for how much longer? But there's another reason we're going to cover that today. Because it's a case study in how studies can say anything you want them to say. How you rake data or stack data or choose the way you accumulate. And you could even take that study... And have it peer-reviewed. How does that work? Peer review doesn't say we think you're right. Your opinion is valid. Peer review says we have reviewed the study. We have determined that the methodology stated in the study was followed as it was presented. And the data resulting from it was valid based on the parameters of the study. Now, if you've ever been and I was, kind of a high-level executive in corporate America, and you had to put presentations together, then you learn to use a little tool that Microsoft was very, it's very proud of to this day. And it's a very useful tool. But I'm telling you, back in like 1990, Microsoft was, ha, 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 look what we have, Excel. You give me data that says my sales force is doing terribly, and you let me manipulate that data, and i got to go through in front of the board, Even if it's not a pleasant picture, I will mitigate the damage by like 90% just with some manipulation. And that's with hard data they have access to. With this shit, they pull the data from anywhere that they wish to and you can't find it all. But this one's transparent and we can see right through it. So we're going to have a fun time today as we pick that apart and hear from our other experts. Before we do, let's hear from our two sponsors of the day today. Sponsor no, number one today will be Joel Riles with K9 Academy. Guys, you want to check this out. You're going to hear from Joel today. He's now a member of the Expert Council. By the way, I need some more questions for him. I don't have any questions into him right now. And I know a lot of you guys got dogs, and you want to know how to do things better with your dogs. Joel's the guy to ask. But he also has a K9 Academy, so you can get trained so you know how to train your dog. I really recommend you check it out. It's at K9Academy.com. Though I would ask you, if you're going to uh, check out K9 Academy, please come by the website. Click on the link in today's show notes or the banners. I have a different deal with Joel than I have with everybody else. Uh, we're on an affiliate relationship. I generally don't do that with sponsors. I did that to make it more approachable for Joel because I really wanted to help him out because he is a close personal friend. And I helped him build the marketing messaging and structure behind K9 Academy. Uh, so I kind of felt like I really wanted to help him out with that. In fact, that's why Bell is in our home. We, we actually bartered. My wife bartered for that a couple of years ago at a workshop on her barter blanket. It was really a barter pool table because it was too cold outside. And uh, so I have one of his Fortress Canines right here in our home. That's Bell, our little Malinois. She's an awesome dog, and I learned a ton from Joel, and you can learn too because he's made his instruction scalable by putting it online. The basics course would be the one to take first, and then you can decide if you want to do something else. Uh, next up today is Start9 Embassy Servers. I'm telling you guys, it is time to take your tech back from big tech, and a Start9 server will get that done for 
you. I promise you. It really will. It isn't hard. Don't be afraid of the technology. And by the way, if you buy like the larger one, it'll pay for your, your, your MSB membership for like two and a half years. Even the smaller server will pay for it for like a year and a half because they give you a great discount on a product that is a little bit spendy. But once you have it, you have something you can't buy at any, you can't buy at any price. Freedom. Freedom so that your data is not manipulated, controlled, and blocked or censored by other people. You can run a Bitcoin node. You can run a Lightning node. You can do a lot of cool stuff. And can I do it? I know that's what everybody wants. Can I, can I possibly do this? It sounds techy and hard. Can you install apps on your phone and use them? If you answered that question with yes, then yes, you can run a Start9 Embassy server. Now, things like a Bitcoin Lightning node, that takes some more technical expertise. And it's not something everybody needs to do anyway. But run a Bitcoin node? That's simplistic. It's Couple clicks of a couple buttons and you're up and running. End-to-end encrypted messaging. Be able to store all your files, access them from anywhere in the world, fully encrypted over the Tor network, no matter where you are. And no one can see what you're doing. And that's great even if you're not doing anything you want to hide because you don't know what you need to hide anymore. We really live in a world now that is dadgone scary. It's 1984 all over again, for real this time. And it's time to do something about it. This is one step you can easily take. With that, let's drop on in and hear from Dr. Paul and Dan McAdams. And then the next segment you'll hear will be from Dr. Paul and Chris Rossini. Three American troops killed in drone attack in Jordan. Now, there's some speculation about the in Jordan. Uh, Jordan has has denied that there has been an attack on its own territory. (coughs) Pardon me, coming from Iraq. So there is a question and there's some speculation uh, that these troops were actually near the Al-Tanf air Airbase in Syria and that the U.S. government doesn't want to, to get out that they were killed in Syria because, as you were saying, some of the questions that they have, they will have it double because the U.S. troops are not there legally in Syria. But as you say, Dr. Paul, and very importantly, this is not unusual. This has happened before. The media would like us to believe that this is the first time an American has ever been killed there and they've crossed a red line. It's time for us to go in. Well, in fact, it's not, and and we've talked about it on the show many times, there have been, I think, at least 200 attacks since the October 7th Hamas uh, issue in Israel. So the fact of the matter is there's been many, many more. Americans have been killed there. They're stationed where they shouldn't be. And the only reason these troops are there, Dr. Paul, is to act as a tripwire. Literally, their purpose is being served by them being hurt or killed. You talk about a Washington and a Pentagon who cares about the soldiers. No, that's the reason they're there, because they know as soon as there's a death, as soon as these uh, uh, service members are killed or hurt, there's going to be a clamor for military action. And what happens when that happens? Well, the neocons go nuts. Let's go to the next clip, because the usual suspects say the usual things. Lindsey Graham, hit Iran now. Hit them hard. Senator John Corden from our own state, target, target Tehran. Even though, of course, they were fired from Iraq uh, into Jordan, it doesn't matter, Dr. Paul. Anything that goes wrong, hit Iran. Why are they attacking our bases in Iraq and Syria and Jordan? Well, because they don't want us there. Well, what was the reason we invaded Iraq for the second time in the first place? To give them their democracy (laughs) and the choice. And they voted four years ago for the Americans to leave, and we said no. And they just came out. Uh, uh, the Prime Minister just came in a couple of days ago and says, we'd like you guys to leave. And we said, no. 
The Syrians likewise have said, we don't want you on our territory. Leave. So they're attacking these troops, having bases here, because they don't want them there. So the other question would be, well, do we have any legal authority to be there? Not really, if they voted us to leave. So why are we there? But they won't. Unfortunately, because I think the, the manipulation of the mainstream media, they won't stop and say, okay, we have troops there. Um, nobody wants them there, and they're being targeted, and they're being killed. Why don't we just take them home? But that never seems to be part of the equation. <laughs> yeah, you know? right. How dare they tell us to leave their territory? This uh, intervention doesn't make any sense. It is uh, aggression, and it's illegal, and it's far more than most Americans would think. You know, the Americans are waking up because they heard that we were wasting money in Ukraine. Yeah. But we, we waste money all over the world, <laughs> and, and if, if anything settles down, we're ready to go someplace else. Yeah. We want to talk about the Fed a little bit in detail, and uh, I think we have somebody helping us out. Wrote an article about why we should audit the Fed. I can't imagine who in the world would do such a thing. Chris. Well, it's actually a senator that we both like, Dr. Paul. His name is Senator Rand Paul from Kentucky. Oh, and yes, he is out there <laughs> calling for an audit of the Fed. What a wonderful idea uh, because of the secrecy. You know, they nobody could know what they're up to. Uh, and, and I just wanted to go into a little history. You know, this isn't the first time that America has had to deal with a central bank. We've had central banks in the past that were closed down. Uh, you know, ever since the very beginning, Alexander Hamilton wanted a central bank. So they wanted this right away. Uh, the Fed, unfortunately, is the only one that's stuck. And it has stuck with us for 100 years now. Uh, but back in the early 1800s, there was the second bank of the United States. That was the central bank at the time, and its president, his name was Nicholas Biddle. And listen to his words. It could be said by, you know, Jerome Powell today. He said, quote, we believe that the prosperity of the bank and its usefulness to the country depend on its being entirely free from the control of the officers of the government. In order to preserve that independence, it must never connect itself with any administration. Now, I'll agree with that it should never be connected with any administration. We don't want Nancy Pelosi printing money or Lindsey Graham or Nikki Haley. God forbid if they had the printing press, we would collapse a lot faster. But uh, neither should a private bank be able to print money either. It doesn't make it right just because politicians can't print money. It's wrong for a private bank to print dollars, period. And that was actually one of the in the Constitution, one of the federal laws, no counterfeiting. So they outsourced it to a private uh, bank, and they do it in secret. You don't know what they're doing. Like Nicholas Biddle said, you know, we're independent. There's, you don't need to see what we're doing, and that's how it is with the Fed. You can't see. It's like Pfizer. You could see about the vaccine in 75 years. Well, the Fed's even worse. You could never see what they're doing. You know, I, I love Dr. Paul. I really do, and I love all the work that he's done, and he has probably created more libertarians and anarchists than any other human on the planet. But one of the things I think that he's just missing the boat on is this idea of auditing the Fed. It sounds great. I'm going to tell you right now, even if it happened, it's not going to do anything. You have to, If you want a case study in this, I want you to look at COVID, and then you can see that the truth will not matter to the average idiot. It won't. Every single thing that people like me said about COVID in the early days, 
Every single thing has been proven accurate. Every single thing we said about the vaccine. It was untested. It's not a vaccine. It doesn't prevent infection. It doesn't prevent transmission. Every single thing we've said about it, okay, has been proven true. And the censorship hasn't stopped. Do you know what I got today? I got a notice from YouTube for one of my mo my, my videos being removed for medical misinformation. How old was it? I'm glad you asked. In that inter in that uh, that video, I was interviewing Kingsley Edwards of Float, which doesn't even exist anymore because the project failed. It was two and a half years old. They removed it yesterday to protect you from medical misinformation that is accurate information, by the way. And all of this has come out. We've had tremendous amounts of data dumps. We know how many injuries, how much died suddenly there is. The media has come out with propaganda saying that people die suddenly because they laugh at the doctor or get too happy over a soccer game, and I'm not making it up. So what do you think would happen if we audited the Fed and we found like a dozen irregularities, and even if it was reported, which it wouldn't be, by Fox, CNN, MSNBC at all? The average idiot's going to go, oh, it'll be all right, they'll fix it. There's only one way to take control away from something that big, and that's to wrest it away, to seize it. And there's only one answer. And you know what it is. And I'm not going to say it. You know what it is. And if you're a holdout on it, keep holding out. Have fun. Stay poor. Anyway, moving on, let's talk about our troops acting as tripwires for war. That's the more interesting thing to me, because I'm going to read something to you that I wrote, that I put out on Noster and Twitter today. And with it, I put, to, to drive the whole thing home, a photograph uh, that, that shows the wall, the Vietnam Memorial Wall. And I put a caption on that photograph, and that caption is, This wall has a lesson for us, but sadly, it is clearly one we do not wish to learn. And I'm going to read what I wrote, let it speak for itself, and we'll move on to the next person, the next expert. When the U.S. got into Vietnam, there were two types of advisors who told our government what we should do as to escalation or not in our involvement. One type said, how can people who use bows and arrows to fight helicopters win a war? Let's go in, end this with all our military power. The other type said, how can we expect to win a foreign war on ground we don't control, against people who are willing to use bow and arrow, against helicopters. We need to stay out of this. Today in Washington, there is a beautiful, black, and somber wall with 58,000 names on it that died fighting that war. Hundreds of thousands came back with broken minds and bodies, and we got nothing from it. Not to mention that hundreds of thousands of Vietnamese were killed for no real reason. Rather than learn that the second type of advisor was correct, we have continued this path and did it all over again in Iraq and Afghanistan, in the end killing millions of innocent people who were no threat to us. U.S. loss of life was small compared to Vietnam, but we have, we have yet another generation of disabled, broken, and PTSD-laden men and women for, again, no gain. We got exactly nothing out of these two wars. They cost us over a trillion dollars and the blood of both sides for nothing of value. Now as we thump our chest this time not even half a decade out of the last idiotic wars, we still haven't learned a damn thing and seemed hell-bent on a broader Middle Eastern war. Profits for Lockheed and General Dynamics seem far more important than the American interests 
and the good of the American people. And while at it, we engaged in a proxy war that killed 500,000 Ukrainian men and injured about a million. By the way, I'm out of my article for a second. That is a real number if you look for the real number and don't believe what the TV tells you. A half a million Ukrainian men are dead and gone. We can see massive new graveyards with satellite imagery. You need to check out the work being done by Redacted and Colonel Douglas McGregor as well, who they have on all the time at Redacted. If you want to know the real truth about what has happened, no matter what your opinion is, about what should happen in Ukraine. Back to what I wrote. And I'll just reread that so we get back in the right way. And while at it, we engaged in a proxy war that killed 500,000 Ukrainian men and injured about a million, wrecked their entire economy, and destroyed their future for 50 years at least. But hey, BlackRock can make a fortune investing in rebuilding after it's over. They already put out a plan to do so, and I'm sure Congress will subsidize it as they make billions off of the suffering we enabled. And yesterday, a sitting senator from Virginia, by the way, applauded this because it, quote, weakened Russia, end quote. We have learned nothing from history because the people in power have made sure it was impossible for anyone except a true independent thinker to do so. If you read all this and it made sense to you, it is likely that the world around you does not make sense to you. It is likely uncomfortable. However, it is worth it. It just means you can think for yourself in a world that largely cannot. And with that, let's just go ahead. I don't really need to add much to that. So let's hear about something a little bit um, fun instead of so much misery and things that we really can't do anything about except just form our own opinions. And that is, hey, how do you teach a dog to fetch? Hello, everyone. This is Joel with K9 Academy. <clears throat> Coming back to answer another question for you on the expert council and it's actually a bonus question from uh chris in kentucky who asked the question last time about potty training a 10 month old labrador and his question was how to teach a dog to fetch so i was going to go through that with you guys today briefly and uh, kind of show you how we do that with our dog so the very first thing that we want to do is find an object that the dog is already interested in now a lot of times this is a ball but if your dog seems uninterested in a ball, you can initially start this with something more like a soft play toy or something like that. And I'll kind of shake it in front of them and I'll kind of act interested in it like, oh, what is that? And I'll kind of pick it up and I'll toss it a little bit. And uh, oftentimes I'm on my hands and knees on the ground with a young dog uh, when I'm doing this or out in the grass while I'm doing this. Uh, and you can do it with a ball or any other soft toy, but you're trying to get the dog interested in putting its mouth on the object. Now, once it starts to put its mouth on the object, I want to praise the dog with something like good fetch or good get it. We typically use get it instead of fetch. And then as soon as they get it, um, I want to try and encourage them to hold it in their mouth and I tell them bring it. So I use get it to go and get the object and then bring it to bring it back to me. And since I'm already pretty close to the dog, unless they get real excited and just run off with it, which they will occasionally do, um, I will just say, oh, good, get it. And they're kind of right there next to me already. And I'll reach over and grab like a flat collar um, or I'll just pull them over close to me. I'll praise them up. Good, get it. And uh, and then when I reach down and put my hand on the object, I'll tell them, good, bring it. boy, good, bring it. Now, if they don't release it for me, um, I want to make sure they've had adequate praise before I do this, and then I will tell them out. 
And out means let go of it with your mouth, right? Stop holding on to it. And if I need to, I'll reach in and gently kind of uh, reach under their lips, their upper lips, and squeeze their back teeth just a little bit to get them to open their mouth. And then as soon as I have it in my hand, I praise more. Oh, good out. boy, good out. And, uh, and then I'll start immediately playing with it again, kind of tossing it back and forth. They'll get excited. They'll jump and put their teeth on it. Good, get it. And, uh, and then bring it. And then I slowly continue this process by I'm tossing it a little farther out each time. Now, what will often happen when you do this is you'll reach a certain distance where they get it and they want to run around and they don't want to bring it back to you. This is one of the reasons why the praise is really important. And I also don't necessarily want to take it away from them immediately, necessarily. Now, there are times and places when that is important um, for certain training things that we do. But if they're losing interest because I'm taking it too quickly, I'll let them kind of continue to play with it. If I'm using something like a soft toy, often what I'll do is I'll grab a part of it and kind of play a little tug game with them, right? And I'm praising them the whole time I'm doing this. Good, get it. Good, get it. Oh, yeah. And I'm kind of pulling and tugging a little bit, and they're pulling back. And, uh, and I just encourage that behavior. And I'll do it for 5 to 15 seconds, and then I'll stop my motion. I'll, I'll stop moving so that I'm not continuing to encourage the tugging. And I'll say, okay, good, bring it. Now, out. And then I'll, again, reach in under their lips, squeeze their teeth just a little bit to open their jaw, take it out of their mouth, and then praise them, good, out, good, out. And we'll go back and forth, back and forth with this uh, process until the dog is, every time I throw the object, they run out and get it. And I say, good, get it. And then um, when I tell them, bring it, they bring it back to me. And then they out when I tell them to out. Now, some of the dogs will run out and get it. And then when I say, bring it, They'll either run around and not want to come back or they'll drop it, right? So if they run around and don't want to come back, I'll attach a long line to their flat collar because I don't want to associate correction with this unless I have to. And, uh, and I'll just gently pull them toward me with the um, flat collar and the long line while I'm praising them for getting it and bringing it. So it'll be something like, good, get it, good, bring it, good, bring it. If they drop it, I usually start by, it's okay, get it. And they'll pick it back up and I go, good, get it. If they don't pick it up, I start to play with it again until they pick it up. And then I praise them for getting it again, right? So depending on how sensitive your dog is to some of this stuff, you may have to play with some of these things back and forth, back and forth a little bit. But ultimately what I'm looking for in the end is I throw the object. I tell them to go get the object. They get it. I praise them. Good, get it. Bring it. When they bring it to me, I praise them. Good, bring it. And then once they're back with me, uh, I put my hands on the object that's in their mouth and I say out and they give it to me. Um, it's really important when you're doing this because you want it to be enjoyable and a game for the dog that there's lots and lots of praise, both verbally as well as petting praise when they do this. Now, sometimes they'll bring it right back and they'll drop it on the ground at my feet. I don't typically mind that unless there's a reason you don't want them doing that. That's fully acceptable. Um, but certainly when you put your mouth or your hand on it while it's in their mouth and you want them to release it, um, you want to make sure that they know the out command. So now if they're, if they're refusing, if you're trying to squeeze their, their mouth to have them release it and, uh, and they're refusing, I'll grab the lead on a prong collar or some kind of correction collar and I do a light correction and I'll say, we that out. Right, so my fooey is our verbal correction command, but I'm giving it very gently. I'm not going fooey that. I'm just 
Weird out. And then I, I might have to pop a little harder on the uh, correction. And so they released it, but I want it to be as gentle as possible and get the release. And then I immediately praise them for out. Good out. Good out. All right, guys. I hope this has been helpful for you. I hope you enjoy working with your dogs uh, on teaching them fetch. Don't forget, if you want lots of other dog training, you can find that at canineacademy.us. I highly recommend you use the link at Jack Spearco's website, The Survival Podcast. Click on the banner and uh, hop on over and check us out. We would love to work with you and help teach you how to train your dogs. Until next time, remember to train hard and stay safe. So I agree with everything. I will give you an additional technique that you can use. Joel would probably disagree with this, and that's fine, because Joel's training working dogs that are going to be out and about and be put to work all the time, and he's very concerned that he wants to make sure that whatever he needs to ensure compliance is always with him. If you're just trying to train a dog to fetch and general obedience and come when you want them to come... There is a real good place for using food. And again, Joel doesn't do this, and I understand why, and I agree with his reasoning. But it's also a valid technique. So one of the best ways to do this is to get them to associate a command or a sound. And a click trainer, the little thing that goes click, click, little clicker trainer, is a good way to do it because it's very distinctive. And if you start by training your dog, when I give this click, if you come in front of me and sit down, you get a little nubbin, a little nibby. It is very quick. And it's actually a really good thing if you like, I need a shortcut to compliance. When that dog's acting like an ass and running all over the place and whatever in the house, click, click, and that dog runs over just, oh, what do you got, right? And in that use, I would make sure you go ahead and feed them. I don't always give the treat. I always give treat or praise in this situation. So it becomes an either-or thing, but the conditioning becomes... It's Pavlov's dog. You you ring the bell every time you feed the dog, and then when you ring the bell, the dog starts slobbering. All right, that, I don't know if you ever learned that in school, but back when they used to actually teach shit in school, they taught us about things like that in science class. So look it up if you don't know the story, Pavlov's dog. So I take Bell over to our west pasture. It's all fenced in. It's fenced off from the ducks. I don't have to get upset or worried about her going anywhere. And I'll play with her. With a, with, a, with a tug she likes, which is just a big piece of rope with knots in it. I'm sure you've seen them. And I'll throw it out, and she'll bring it back. And sometimes she starts running around. Now, I want to let her let the string out a little bit, so I'll let her run around for a while till I want her. And I'll always call her, come here. But I'll, if she doesn't immediately, I'll do that double click. And she runs over. She's real good about bringing her toy. If she does not bring the toy with her, and this has happened over time, that she knows what I'm talking about, go get your toy. And I sound like I'm excited. Go get your toy. Not you didn't. You did a bad thing. Go get your toy. Go get your toy. And I'll walk. I'll walk all the way where the toy is. And when I go to pick it up, she'll grab it. Good. Get your toy. Bring your toy. And I'll go back to where I was. And if she follows me, great. If not, click, click. She'll come and she just and I'll drop it. He uses release or whatever he said. I use drop it. And when I say drop it, she drop. Good. Drop it. Exactly what he. But I usually give her a little piece of pepperoni. And I do that because I'm letting a dog that can run a hell of a lot faster me loose on an acre, and I need a way that I know I can get her back while she's still in kind of this, this transition between full-grown dog and still got pup in her. She's like a teenager right now on meth. I mean, Mallies are, that's what they are. They're, they're, there's a guy I follow, I can't think of his name now, but I follow him on TikTok. He's totally worth following for the humor. He does a lot of things with dogs, 
and he plays like both sides in a skit or sometimes three sides in a skit. And one of his, his shticks is he pretends to be God and an angel inventing new dog breeds. And, uh, you know, the, the angel's Gabriel. And when, the, when Gabriel invents the Malinois, God says, ooh, I love good new dogs. What, what, what is, you know, how'd you make it? And he said, so I started with a German shepherd, then I made him Belgian, and then into his DNA I infused crack cocaine, ecstasy, meth, and more cocaine. Right? And God's like, did it work? He goes, yeah, it's like a German shepherd that can do parkour. That's what they are. So if it'll work there, it will probably work anywhere. And it does not replace all the other training that you need to be doing. But that's that's just something that we've done that's made our lives better. And the other thing we do with Belle is she always has her clinch collar on unless she's in her crate. And she's always dragging a leash. And if she starts rampaging through the house with zoomies and she won't comply, just wait for her to come by and you step on that leash. How much correction do you get? Well, girl... You decide how hard you try before you stop. And so they'll self-correct when you step on that leash. And she's got an hour. She knows that leash is okay. <laughs> so just a little add on there. Anyway, let's hear about storing flour long-term from Nicole Sauce. Hey, TSP. Nicole Sauce here from NicoleSauce.com and the Living Free in Tennessee podcast with a question from John in Moore Park. John asks, hey, Nicole, is this a good way to store flour for one to three years? And then he included a link to a video that shows somebody putting it in mason jars, and then they put a cupcake paper over the top of it, and then they sealed the jars with a vacuum sealer, I believe, and put them on the shelf. I have more questions than answers to this. I mean, when you store ground flour... It goes bad faster than when you store wheat berries that you have to grind. But when you bake with flour that you've ground yourself, the, the results are a little bit different. It's a learning curve to learn how to do that. That being said, the first question I have is why are you storing flour for three years? Because if you don't store it for three years, then you don't need to worry about how to store it for three years. Better, I think, would be to find a system of being able to refresh your pantry on an ongoing basis with a, a certain amount of flour that's in there so that you always have relatively fresh flour going. As far as storing ground flour, I like to keep it to a year maximum if I'm going to store flour. And if I want to store it longer than that for whatever reason, like maybe the wheat berries were cheap this year, or maybe I'm building up my preps for longer-term storage, in that case, I prefer to store it like I prefer to store coffee beans. And that is in its seed state. So as a wheat berry with an O2 absorber in a bucket and a Mylar bag or vacuum sealed in a jar, a mason jar, that works great. If you're going to do that, though, my recommendation is you take your wheat berries, put them in the freezer for, I put them in for a month or two. If you don't have that long, go shorter, so that any little critters that live in there, because sometimes there's eggs in your wheat berries, don't hatch and then end you up with some sort of a pantry moth problem. So here's what you do. You get the wheat, throw it in the freezer, and then when it's been in the freezer long enough, you take it back out of the freezer and seal it in jars with an O2 absorber 
or a moisture absorber and then go from there. You can vacuum seal it without the moisture absorber, but I live in Tennessee. When I come out of the freezer and it hits the warmer air that's humid, I've noticed that moisture gets on my wheat berries. Most of mine, though, are in five-gallon buckets and not jars. And because I'm a ketogenic eater, I rarely use flour. Like maybe once or twice a year, I'm using it to thicken gravy. And then I keep mine on hand for family members who do eat bread. For example, in 2020, when they could not get flour in California, I was actually shipping wheat berries across the country after grinding them because I had a grinder. That then brings me to the next thing. What kind of wheat grinder should you have if you're going to store wheat berries? And they make manual ones that you can crank, and those are a, a major pain in the butt. But, you know, to each their own. You don't need electricity for that. Better is to get an electrical one that will grind it up more finely. Personally, I use a Vitamix because whenever I grind the wheat berries, it's maybe a cup volume at a time. So that works for me. But if you're going to do high volume, I would get an actual wheat grinder. I would get an electric one. I would not get a stone ground one. I did have a stone ground one for years, but that makes a much coarser grind. And then that's harder to bake with. I get, you know, they're like 400 bucks, a nice electric home flour grinding mill and then go on with your life. That's probably not the answer you were looking for. The video you sent me really looked like somebody who is looking to build an Instagram presence doing something pretty in the kitchen. And if you want to do something pretty in the kitchen, go for it. But if you want to store flour and you want to store it long term, look into how to store unground flour, how to grind it, and then learn how to bake with flour that you've ground at home. What you're going to find if you do this is that the things that you bake taste exponentially better than when you buy the store ground flour at the store and store that. It's a totally different experience, and I think it's well worth it if you are into homemade breads, cakes, cookies, all of those things. I hope this helps you out. Guys, don't forget, you can get awesome coffee at hollerroast.com and do check out what's going on at nicolesauce.com. We're about to have a pretty darn cool marketing webinar with Sue Zoldak in February. And then we have the My Three Things webinar series starting again this year. So that's all over at nicolesauce.com. Make it a great week. You know, guys, uh, I don't really have anything to add on the flour thing. Nicole's far more schooled on flour than me. I'm not much of a flour guy. We keep a little bit around for making a roux once in a while. That's about it. Anyway, um, I do want to throw in a little pitch for her and the work she's doing with my three things. And if you listen to this show and you're constantly hearing me kick you in the ass to get shit done, but you at the end of the week or the month, you kind of look back and go, I didn't really get a lot done. My three things is a deceptively simple practice to make amazing progress in your life over time. I remember I was at a seminar one time, and the guy was talking about getting things done. He was talk, he, the term he used was head down and butt up. And what he was talking about is he used to work as a contractor, as a roofer. And you'd have to like spread tar on the roof or whatever, and you start way at one end of a big commercial building. It looks like forever before you're going to get to the other end. But he would just start working and stop looking back. 
you know, and you work until it's lunchtime, when you look back, holy crap, I'm more than halfway done. I'm actually going to get done today because the focus is on the work. What Nicole has done is break down the work into small bites with this practice of three things. And the, the glory of three things, if you can't think of three things you can get done today, then you do one or two. But you, you, you shoot for three, and, and that doesn't mean you only do three. And you can check out what she's doing to learn more about it. But it is, again, deceptively simple, and it can be taken to a much higher level. She's putting a book together and seminar series and some other things on it right now. I really recommend that you check it out. And uh, next up, now we have uh, uh, some thoughts about a shade garden and cover cropping within a shade garden. Hi, Jeff here coming to you from Australia. And I have a question about shade garden and raised garden beds. I don't know the climate, so without the climate, I can't really tell you which cover crops will work. And the question is about cover crops. But a raised bed garden is really not a large area, and you really don't need to muck about with chop and drop and cover crops, really. If it's a cold climate, there's a great cover crop called snow and frost that will sterilise everything and give you a fresh start every year in the springtime. Now, a smaller area... If you apparently put, they've been putting chicken manure and and and, um, and leaves over, and then open it back up in the in the in the springtime. It's a shady area. It's going to limit the amount of plants you can grow. The, the varieties. I couldn't tell you without knowing the exact climate which plants, but that's not the point. If you if you're in a small area and you've got raised bed gardens, get some compost. Now doing a compost course, we want really good compost. Biochar is just going to give you habitat for the bacteria in the compost, the very small organisms. But you haven't got super heavy rain like the tropics. Well, you've got to do that much. It's where you get very very large droplets of high impact rain like the tropics that biochar protects the bacteria that have very are very very small and so they've got lots and lots of habitat in the large surface area but all you need is lots of compost so if it's a small area get a large amount of compost on that garden in the autumn put cover it with cover it with mulch sit it for the winter and then uncover it the mulch in in the spring go again with some more compost that's more new and active mulch plant and it'll it'll rock it because you're the best incubator in the garden if it's a raised bed garden your energy over the area is much much larger than anything else your your energy per square foot so don't hesitate to put in a really good mix of compost that's alive with great diversity of organisms the shade is a limiting factor but you'll get the best selection of shade loving plants that you can possibly get by bringing that soil alive it's all about having the maximum diversity of beneficial soil life and the maximum number of beneficial soil life and you'll get the maximum potential result one thing you can do is paint the walls around the area matte white matte white as the best reflective effect on shade than anything else and that's about it after that you haven't got it you've got the best you can get which is what we're always aiming for i'm gonna say i disagree a little bit just a little bit exactly what he told them to do 
I have recommended many times myself, and it will absolutely work. You can basically put a bed to sleep for the winter, and it is good enough. It is not the case, though, that using a, a winter cover will not produce better long-term and more durable, reliable, and resilient results, though. There is an awful lot of soil life that simply cannot do its job without living root in the soil. And so the longer we keep living root in the soil, the more the health of the soil is. And if you're constantly adding compost, I agree, it'll be okay, but it could be better, and you could reduce the amount of compost you need as well if you take a cover approach. As to what to plant, I, 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 I will accept responsibility for this. I get in a hurry sometimes, question comes in, Jeff's a big boy, he can handle it, and I flip that over there. Some of my expert council members have enough time in their day or just are nice enough people that if they have a question, they'll see the email who it came from, and they'll send that person a question. Hey, what climate are you in or whatever? Jeff is not, I mean, we're lucky Jeff Lawton does this. He, and he's cranking out, you know, three, four segments a month for us, and he's one of the most in-demand people in the world, so I don't expect Jeff to do that. I should have screened that one better before I forwarded it to him because I can only give you so much even with my slightly different opinion here because I don't know what you should plant because I don't know what will survive in your winters or for until it's deep into your winter and then let it winter kill. What I will say is this. It is often the case that a place that is in heavy shade, a place that's in heavy shade, will not be in heavy shade in the winter because all the leaves fall off the trees. So unless it's just shaded by a hard structure, a building, or an evergreen, then it really shouldn't affect exactly what you plant. What do I think would be a good cover crop here? If you wanted a single species cover crop, cereal rye. That's probably the best single species. And if you're doing all the other things Jeff said, then it won't matter. What I will tell you is cereal rye does have some allelopathic uh, uh uh, effect, but it's more of a pre-emergent small seed alleopathic. So it's used all the time with corn. Corn's planted about an inch and a half deep. It doesn't have any real effect on it at all. But if you kill your, your cereal rye um, about two weeks before you're going to plant it, it really will be gone and it won't affect transplants and it won't affect large seed. It would affect things like carrot and what have you. So it depends on what you're going to plant. Uh, as to what to grow there in the growing season, I mean, again, you just have to figure out what does well, right? What does well in shade in your climate? And, you know, that list is probably not real long, but there are things that do well. And they're generally, you know, you would think it would be things that aren't like leaf crop, but it's generally leaf crop stuff. And a lot of stuff that, that, that does well in the shade as a leaf crop actually tastes a lot better shade grown. So your lettuces and spinaches and things like that, what you may be able to do is grow them later in the season than typical because they benefit from shade. If you wanted a permanent ground cover to plant into, then if you are far enough south where the shade is an advantage, and it's not so much shade that the plant won't grow, something like a Dutch white clover can be a living mulch. Because it only gets so tall, it's easy to knock back, it constantly regrows, it'll keep the ground covered all the time, and you just knock a hole in it with a trowel and drop your transplants in. All of this will depend a high degree on what you're planting. Now, the final thing. You know, he said it's not very big. Well, raised beds are as big as you make them, and how many are there, etc. If you have a 4x4 raised bed, and this is what all this is about, I'm kind of back to where Jeff was. 
just put it to bed. It's probably not worth it. If you have several beds or, you know, you're looking at like a hundred square foot or something like that, I would try to get a cover into it if that's what you want to do. Another cover that'll work really great, but you're going to have to seriously put some effort into killing it at the end of the season when you want to plant into it is rye grass, not winter rye, but rye grass. If you're in a northern climate, you could be fighting it all the way to midsummer or longer in the shade. It is an annual, but it's fairly long-lived as an annual. If you live somewhere where it's really going to warm up, it'll just kick the bucket on its own. Once you get up into like, you start having days that are routinely in the mid to upper 80s, it, it just says like, I'm tired, boss. I'm checking out. Anyway, let's go on and hear about head lice. Ew, from Doc Bones. Hi, Joe Alton, MD here, also known as Dr. Bones of the survival medicine website doomandbloom.net, co-author of the Book Excellence Award-winning fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook and designer of quality medical kits at store.doomandbloom.net. Being the family medic off the grid in survival scenarios isn't always about treating bullet wounds. Mundane problems are also on the menu, and you better know how to treat them. In normal times, this is the time of year the kids return to school. Lots of children together in close quarters means there's an issue you might have to deal with. Head lice. Yep, I'm talking about head lice. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, the CDC, believes that 6 to 12 million children contract head lice infestations. And you can bet that it will be an issue that runs rampant in survival communities as well. Head lice, scientific name Pediculus humanus capitus, are parasitic wingless insects 2 to 3 millimeters long, that's probably the size of a sesame seed, that feed on blood which they obtain by biting the scalp. The presence of these lice is known as pediculosis, and it causes irritation and itching in many, although actually a lot of kids don't seem to notice them. Their less developed immune systems may be the reason that cause less of a reaction that you might see in an adult. Lice, uh, by the way, the singular of lice is louse, are generally speaking species-specific. You can't, for example, get lice from your dog or cat like you could maybe get fleas. You get them only from other humans. Head lice are so specialized that they're built to survive only on human head hair. When not attached, they perish within about three days or so. The good news is that, although they might make you miserable, head lice don't transmit diseases to other humans, like mosquitoes might. Body and pubic lice, well, they're different stories altogether, and we'll discuss them in a future show. Although a house full of kids with head lice might make you wary of the sanitary conditions in the residence, interestingly enough, they're not really related to cleanliness. Even a clean home can wind up having kids that have lice. The most common symptom is itching of the head, which I mentioned, and that normally worsens about two to six weeks after the initial infestation. It takes a while for it to develop. In future infestations, symptoms like itching will occur earlier in the process. The bite itself is very mild and might or might not be possible to see between individual hairs. In people who have long hairs, bites may actually be noted on the back of the neck or the nape. In cases where itching is severe, excessive scratching may cause skin breakdown, leading to bacterial skin infections like cellulitis, something we've talked about on this show before. At the other end of the spectrum, many individuals don't experience any itching at all. Go figure. Pediculosis is diagnosed by finding live lice and unhatched eggs, which are called nits, on the scalp or individual hairs. Specialized louse combs that are used with a magnifying glass on wet hair can help identify an infestation, although some confuse dandruff, lint, or even dried hair product for the eggs. And indeed, nits look like small bits of dandruff that are stuck to hairs. They're more easily seen when examined using a black light. This causes them to fluoresce as light blue dots attached to hair shafts near the scalp. 
Black lights, of course, are going to be pretty scarce off the grid after a collapse, so a fine-tooth metal pet comb run through the hair, much more practical option to reveal the adult lice and nits. The diligence required to do this effectively has led to the coining of a term that you might have heard of before, nitpicking. You'll find the nits firmly attached to the hair shaft about a quarter of an inch away from the scalp. Nits will generally appear yellowish-white and oval-shaped, and the application of olive oil to the comb, when you actually pick them out, makes them easier to remove. Now, sometimes the infestation goes extinct on its own. An extinct infestation will have no living lice present and just empty white-colored nits further up the hair shaft than a quarter inch. Remember that quarter inch, that's an important thing to tell a active knit from one that might have been hatched already or one that is not uh, viable. Now, how do you prevent head lice infestations? Now, once an active infestation is identified in a family member, everyone in the household has to be thoroughly examined. In survival or other situations where lice are common, weekly examination of children is an important routine duty of the medic. Any child that's frequently scratching their head should be evaluated. It's wise to disinfect the clothes, towels, bedding, and hairbrushes of the infested person and those with which they were in contact. You've got to leave these items outside for three days because lice can't survive more than that without a blood meal. Or alternatively, you could wash in hot water, let's say 130, 140 degrees Fahrenheit, for a full 30 minutes. You should boil combs and brushes for about 5 to 10 minutes. That will also help. Freezing for about 24 hours is an option. It may succeed as well. It may be helpful in winter time. It's also recommended, if possible, to vacuum the floor and furniture where the infested person spent time. Having said that, it's highly unlikely that someone will get lice that has fallen onto the floor or on furniture as they really can't survive long off a human host. Nits can't hatch and will die if they're not kept at the exact same temperature as that found on average human scalp. Medicines that kill lice are known as pediculicides. Over-the-counter shampoos or lotions containing permethrin, like NYX, N-I-X, are usually the first option used to deal with lice. Permethrin is a synthetic form of pyrethrin, and its pyrethrin is a chemical derived from chrysanthemum flowers. It should be noted that the effectiveness of permethrin is starting to decrease due to resistance on the part of some varieties of what they call super lice. Yeesh. A non-prescription lotion containing ivermectin, yep, ivermectin, it's called Sklice, S-K-L-I-C-E. It's toxic to lice and it's approved for use in adults as well as children over the age of six months. You apply it once to dry hair, starting at the scalp and working it outwards so the entire head is covered. Then you rinse off with water after about 10 minutes. One application is about 75% effective in eliminating the problem. Oral prescription ivermectin is known as stromectol. And that's available for adults and children over 15 kilograms in weight as a tablet. The oral drug effectively treats lice with only two doses given eight days apart. This drug is typically used when other treatments haven't been effective. There's a topical prescription drug called malathion. You may have used it on your plants. That's effective for those over about five years old when applied to hair and then rubbed into the scalp. Malathion has a high alcohol content, however, and it's flammable, so keep it away from a heat source such as a hair dryer. No hair dryers when you're dealing with this. Spinosad is also known as Natroba, and that is a drug that's useful for adults and children over the age of four. You can apply it to dry hair and the scalp for 10 minutes and rinse with water. The treatment usually doesn't need to be repeated, but it can be used again after seven days if live lice are still present. Let's talk about home remedies. Perhaps the simplest home remedy is a conditioner and comb method, which avoids irritating chemicals and eliminates issues with strains of insecticide-resistant lice. First, apply hair conditioner to damp hair. Then use your fine-tooth lice comb to work from the scalp through the hair tips to remove adult lice. 
This involves frequently wiping off the comb. Take your time and do the entire head. This process should be repeated twice to break the head lice life cycle. As all the eggs will hatch within a week or so, repeating treatments again and targeting the adult lice before a new batch of eggs is laid, that should work. Other natural options to kill head lice include the use of products such as eucalyptus or tea tree oil. Other home remedies such as putting vinegar, rubbing alcohol, olive oil, mayonnaise, or melted butter under a shower cap, however, generally thought probably not to be effective. This is Joe Alden, that old Dr. Bones, wishing you the best of health and good times or bad. Thanks for listening. Hey, get your family medically prepared with quality kits and individual supplies from our entire line at store.doomandbloom.net. And don't forget to check out the greatly expanded fourth edition of the Survival Medicine Handbook, a worthy addition to your survival library. So, on the lice thing, it just made me think of this when I was listening to it so I could comment on it. When I was a kid in school, I don't know if they still do this, but like especially in grade school, every once in a while they'd go around and check everybody's head to see if you had lice because it is it has this stigma and anything that's unpleasant we tend to stigmatize because oh that doesn't apply to us, right? And it has this stigma of being like this is a dirty, unkempt thing. You know, the reason they used to do that was because if one kid got lice in a classroom and it was not caught, that over time, pretty much the damn whole school would be full of it. Because they're critters, and they move, and they jump. And they're not looking for dirt. They're looking for your head. Right? And look, they want a place to live. Uh, now, the tip I have for you. When I was in Panama, there's a shampoo you can buy to get rid of these critters. And it usually comes with one of those little combs like Bones was talking about. It's also what you use to get rid of like body lice or crabs or some shit like that. Well, they sell this at every grocery store, every pharmacy, whatever. And as you might imagine, at a PX on a base, they sell it, you know, where the shampoo stuff is, usually down the bottom. And, and that way, if you get lice or you're doing things you should, and so you get the crabs or whatever, you go buy it and you take care of it. Well, every once in a while, you just, because, you, you know, you, you see this big empty space on the shelf and there's none of it there. And you're like, well, what the hell was there? Because whenever, I mean, even back then, before I was a prepper or whatever, whenever I saw something completely wiped out, you're like, well, what's going on? And it would always be the, the, the crab killer is what we used to call it, right? And I remember what, back, and I was talking to my sergeant the next day, and I told him, hey, like, all the crab killer was gone. He's like, you got crabs? I'm like, no, I just saw a big empty space. And he goes, oh, let me tell you what, somebody went to the field. So what do you mean somebody? He goes, like, a company went to the field. He goes, if you take that stuff and you wash with it, wash your hair, wash crush, and you do that, and if you're not going to take another shower for a few days, and I don't know if this actually has any like any reason not to, like the toxins get in your body, like you should only use it if you have to, but it was what soldiers did, is they take a shower and wash with it and their hair and all, like as though they had lice. And it would have a multi-day effect of reducing the amount of bites you would get from mosquitoes and sandflies. And it, it did work. And it would not have completely wiped out the supply every time some group of soldiers got sent on a field exercise for a week or two if it didn't work. So that's just a little, like I said, that's something I should have probably said a long ago, and I may have. But I don't remember ever saying it, and that's just one of those things that might be good to know at some point. And it might be a reason to keep that kind of stuff around uh, in case you ever find yourself in a situation that you need it other than just having lice. 
All right, next up, I, I want to do this. Basically, it's like a case study in how propaganda works. So Yahoo News had this article out, and I've gotten this article from at least 30 of y'all. And I'm not complaining. That means I really need send me stuff, because if I get it from more than a few people, I know I need to talk about it. I've seen it all over social media, and I haven't seen anybody defend it yet. I'm sure somebody did, but I haven't seen it. It's, it's, it's basically syndicated from The Telegraph, which is a British publication and I didn't notice that when I read it at first even though it's right at the top but I immediately like switched on when I heard the term allotment in there allotment that's that's a British term or it's a European term anyway because most of the people over there don't have any place to plant so there's things called allotments where you can get a little plot of land to grow your own food and it basically just says here's the headline carbon footprint of homegrown food is five times greater than those grown conventionally not even organic or whatever, like the conventional garbage food that you eat. And he gives you some tips. How to grow green. Grow tomatoes. And what they don't tell you is not that growing tomatoes at home is less pollutive, but it's just that the commercial production of tomatoes is so bad. All right? Grow asparagus. Use recycled wood and building materials. This is where you start to smell the propaganda. Repair, don't replace aging sheds and garden beds. And then grow 90% flowers, not foods, to offset emissions and with social benefits. In other words, grow shit you can't eat and stay dependent. That's the message here. And let me read, I can't read the whole article to you. I read it in full so I could, I could talk about it with you. I suffered through it. My IQ went down a couple points. But here's a piece of it. Hold on to your IQ. Don't let it slip. The majority of these emissions do not come from growing of the food themselves, the scientists, the scientists, TM, say, but from the infrastructure needed to allow the food to be grown. Researchers grouped urban agriculture sites into three categories, individual or family gardens, including allotments, collective gardens, and larger commercial-oriented farms. J.P. Hawkins, a Ph.D. candidate at Michigan, he's a Ph.D. candidate, oh, well, I'm impressed, quote, the most significant contributor to carbon emissions on the urban agriculture sites we tested was the infrastructure used to grow the food, from raised beds to garden sheds to pathways. These constructions had a lot of carbon invested in their construction. Poorly managed compost, I agree with that, and synthetic inputs can also be important contributors, though they were not the majority on most of our sites. That's because home gardeners generally don't do poorly managed compost and don't use synthetic inputs. That's why, dipshit. Um, fruit was found to be 8.6 times more eco-friendly when grown conventionally than compared to a city, whereas vegetables were 5.8 times better for the environment when left to the professionals. I'm skipping around this all. Again, you can't read the whole thing. You, your brain will, will shrink. Here's a little bit more, though. The scientists, TM, also found that they can make their garden at home farming better for the environment by repairing their infrastructure as much as possible and not replacing it unless absolutely necessary. Two-thirds of the carbon footprint of allotment is created by the garden itself, data shows, and building it to endure tough winnows for, winters for several years can reduce the impact. Several years. That would be like three Gardeners should also try to build their site with recycled and secondhand materials whenever possible. 
Uh, with emissions being cut more than half if waste from other parts of the city were upcycled for the beds and sheds, for example. When you read the whole thing, and trust me, you don't have to. You can take my word for this. It's very clear what they did. They looked at a place where somebody had a garden, and they said, okay, we're going to take every single thing in this backyard that might be connected to the garden, even though it might be there if there wasn't a garden, and we're going to figure out how much energy went into producing it and what the carbon footprint of it was. So a walking path made with bricks, for instance. As though you needed the brick walking path to have a garden. Maybe because they wanted a brick path in a garden, they made it go to the garden. But that person probably would, you know, they're not talking about the person with ornamentals and flowers, which are, you know, socially beneficial, whatever that means, who put in a path to the rhododendrons. No, that's fine, because that's not self-sufficiency. Now, when you read the whole thing and you read through it, which is a skill you have to develop to be able to do, it's very clear what these people did. They acted like... The garden shed, which again might have just been a storage shed, like where do you keep your tools? Like keep them in there. That shed might have fucking been there when the person bought the damn property, okay? And that shed is going to last, a shed should last 10 to 20 years at least. At least. My granddad had sheds that were older than him when he was in his 70s. This is stupid. They did the math as though every season you built a new bed and a new shed because it says, it should last for several seasons. Can you see me telling you, hey, go build this raised bed? Well, Jack, how long will it last? One season? You're like, I'm not doing that then. Well, several seasons. What's several? Three, four? Yeah. I'm not doing that then. This is stupid. This is stupid. The only thing that will give you hope for humanity, if you do click the link in my write-up on this, is view the comments. And watch this author... Who some of these people you can tell read this author all the time. This moron's name is Joe Pinkstone. Pinkstone. What a twat. So Joe Pinkstone, his own people that seem to be fans of him are like, I hope you got paid good to sell your soul, Joe. I hope so. This is propaganda. And again, some of the people in the comments are people that they're all in on global warming, but they know this is bullshit. You know what it comes down to? If you think about everything that these people are doing right now, it's all about creating dependency and removing self-sufficiency. And I know sometimes people are like, Jack, you're a little over the top with this. No, I'm not. What are they trying to get rid of right now? What does the Biden administration have its crosshairs on? They kind of shut up for a while, but they've been at it. Gas stoves. Do you know how a gas stove works? It works on gas. I have a gas stove, and I have a 120-gallon 120 120 propane pig just behind my wall of my office, plumbed into my stove. I can go a year running my stove. I don't need anybody's bullshit to run that stove for a full year with one tank of fuel. Well, that's no good. You can't just turn off my propane once I have it. you got to get rid of that. Growing your own food. Oh, no, no. It literally says in this article, folks, leave it to the professionals. Doesn't that sound a lot like... It is very important that you not do your own research. When I was a kid in school, we were encouraged at all times to do our own research, and we had to rely on dusty-ass encyclopedias and a card catalog. Now we have access to all the information on planet Earth, but we shouldn't do our own research. 
It will lead to conspiracy theories. Oh, conspiracy theories like you don't want people to be self-sufficient when you're telling them literally not to grow their own food? You can grow tomatoes and asparagus and screw off with everything else. This is bullshit. I'm telling you that this study, and I defy you to prove me wrong, was written as though a person who gardens builds a new shed and a new garden bed and a new path and buys new equipment every single season. And they didn't do that with farms. Or they did to make their data clean. And you know how that would work. Well, this farm's growing 80 million bushels. So, economy of scale, it would work out to a lower energy footprint if you were that asinine, but nobody could stay in business doing that. I want to hear, is there anybody here that builds a new garden bed every season or every several several seasons? Would you use the word several? Every several seasons, you don't just build a new bed. I don't mean that. I mean you replace the beds you already had in just several seasons. The blatant gaslighting bullshit is now everywhere. Like I said, there were articles when people started kicking off and dying of heart attacks in their 20s and 30s and teens. We started, like, we literally have cardiac wards in hospitals that never had them before. We have more myocarditis in young people than has ever existed. And they have articles that come out. Literally, they had an article that came out that said there was an Egyptian man who died because his favorite soccer team won the World Cup. They called it like something excited, you know, happy heart syndrome or some shit. It was ridiculous. There was an article. I'm telling you, I'm not making this up, guys, if you didn't see it. There was an article a couple years ago that said if you laugh out loud when you go to your doctor, it could cause you to have a heart attack. Not you would, but it could cause you to have... They started making up reasons that people die of heart attacks. And there's more of them. I can't remember them all. I, I got fed up with even reading it. It was just like, oh my God, here's another... Stu-. And just think about the volume of articles that were regurgitated over a one and a half year period at the peak of vaccinations that were ridiculous reasons that people would have sudden heart attacks. They, they said that you could have a heart attack because you worked out too much. You were in too good a shape. That's why I'm not making this up. Now it's hard to find. If you put in, if you try to search for it, you find all this propaganda in the search engines about how it's being twisted that these people die. But we have people that are in their 20s and 30s and early 40s that are professional athletes, people in really good shape, not fatso's, collapsing and dying. Left like every day, there's another couple here and there. Or the died suddenly people wouldn't have anything to work with now, would they? But, oh, just don't pay attention to it. This is being done in every facet of your life. I know that some of you are tired of hearing me tell you about what's really happened in Ukraine, but maybe you should listen. Maybe you should think for a minute. The same people that looked you in the eye and told you that you needed to stay six feet away from people and wear a mask to not get a respiratory virus, which any first-year medical student should be able to tell you if they're being honest, is stupid. And they did that. And now they've come out and they said there was no science behind it at all, which we said and you didn't believe us. Maybe they're lying to you about Ukraine. Do you think it's possible? Do you think it's just possible that people that would lie about medical facts that were already known, and they just changed them to suit. The people who changed the definition of a vaccine, 
so that they could call the COVID mRNA gene therapy a vaccine. Might lie to you. Do you think I'm making that up? Do you really? Go research it. Go find out. The federal government changed the definition of a vaccine so they could call it a vaccine instead of a therapy. It's a therapy. Whether it works or not, that's what it is. It is a prophylactic therapy. It is a therapy you take in advance to reduce symptoms and duration. That is not a vaccine. A vaccine prevents the illness and the transmission of the illness. And people are still talking like the COVID vaccine does that. It doesn't do that at all. It doesn't... Well, it reduces hospitalization and it, it reduces death and, and serious cases. But it doesn't. But even if it did, that would be a prophylactic therapy. That's what it would be. If it did exactly what it But then they'll turn around and say, well, you're, you're, you're putting other people's life at risk. You just admitted that that's a lie. You just admitted it doesn't prevent infection and spread. And then you, you, you backpedaled to it prevents serious infections, death, and hospitalizations. So if I don't get it, I can't be a threat to somebody else. But they'll just double speak it. That's why I said earlier, at the beginning with Dr. Paul, if we audit the Fed, it won't do anything. The truth doesn't matter to people anymore. The truth doesn't matter. The truth doesn't matter. Here's an example of how people don't even see the truth when it's in front of them, even when they agree with it. Yesterday, a new video came out. I'm not going to go deep into it. But James O'Keefe, yeah, that James O'Keefe, suckered a guy who works in cybersecurity for the office of the president into a, a possible date. Turned out this dude was on Tinder's gay guy looking for a long-term relationship but open to short-term. That's what it says. Somebody put a screenshot up on Twitter, saw that later in the day. O'Keefe goes to meet the guy for like lunch just to chat, and the guy wants to be impressive, so he spills his guts about all kinds of shit going on in the White House, how Joe really does have dementia and everybody knows it, and everybody in the administration wants to get rid of Kamala and why they can't, and it's very scandalous, you know, and he just dumps his guts about this. And then O'Keefe tells him who he is, and it is a typical um, type of thing that James O'Keefe does. Very well done. Great journalism. But when I looked at, well, how did this all happen? So dude has a Twitter account advertising that he works for the office of the president in cybersecurity, publicly stating, here I am. Same dude, same name, same pictures. Well, obviously the same guy in two different pictures, right? Has Tinder account. No attempt to mask who he is at all. Looking to hook up with gay dudes. Now, I'm not judging the dude for being gay. I'm going to point something out that no one's put together. You can't have a freaking person that is a key person in cybersecurity working for the President of the United States in the fucking White House out slinging his ass around on Tinder under the same name because it is a vector of attack. You know, we watch all the spy movies and people are shooting each other and all this shit. That's not how this works. That's just that's theatrics, and it's fun to watch on TV, and it's Jack Reacher, uh, Tom Cruise, whatever the hell he was in. I can't think of M Mission Impossible. It should be called Mission Implausible. Uh, you know, the, the Tom Clancy stuff that was made. All of these, James Bond, all this, this is not how spies work. The number one vector to get information is sex. 
It always has been because traditionally men are the ones in positions of power. Most men, despite what the TV tells you, are heterosexual. And most men are stupid when it comes to women. Fang, fang. That type of thing. And they get inside, and then people talk after sex, and they get information. And then they compromise people, and after they're compromised, then they leverage them, and they find out other contacts that they can get into. And that's how, that's how most information's gathered. And it's as old as time, and it's at least as old as the United States, because George Washington used these tactics with women against the British, who would be like, yeah, we're going to go over here and blow the shit out of those yanks tomorrow. Oh, great, now we'll, we'll know. Look it up if you doubt me. This is how business is done in the world today. This is a, all of this shit is psyop, you know, all of it. It's time to start, like I said in my piece at the beginning about war, to think independently for yourself. It will be uncomfortable, but it's worth it. It's totally worth it to think independently, even though it goes against the grain. And you will be shouted at and hated for it by society. And that should tell you how important it is for you to do just that. I'm going to put in more garden beds now just because this pissed me off. Anyway, with that, hope you enjoyed today's show. Tomorrow will be a Friday flashback. If you've been skipping those, don't. They're really cool to go back and listen to the early interviews from the Survival Podcast. We have those every Friday now. That lets me spend more time with my family and work on things like... The Bioreactor Compost Course, which many of you guys are taking. I did a really cool interview last night with Billy Bond. We talked about composting, and then we talked about meat cutting. You can check that out. It's on my YouTube channel. It's on Billy's channel as well. Uh, it was a fun discussion. I think you'll like it. But if you haven't taken the Bioreactor Compost Course yet, please consider doing so. We had over 100 students enroll in January. We have zero complaints. Zero. We had a few things like technical things not working. Tom fixed it. it it's just give it a shot. Homefoodsystems.com to learn more about it. Also, you know you can support us by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. That's T-S-P-A-Z, tspaz.com. Real quick today, item of the day today is one I've brought around a bunch in the past couple months. It's the commercial 10-inch meat slicer made by Vivor. I love this meat slicer. I love the way the blade is designed so that you can remove it without cutting yourself. If you watch my video in the write-up, you'll see why what they did is so simple and so smart, and you just don't wonder why everybody doesn't do the same thing. If I was making meat slicers, I would do what they did, which is tap a hole in the blade so you can have a handle on the blade when you remove it, just for liability reasons about people getting cut by a razor-sharp disc in the first place, because you've got to take them apart to clean them. Meat slicers are awesome. They take everything you're doing to another level, tons of uses for them, and if you use them right, they pay for themselves relatively quickly. Again, Vivor is the manufacturer, the one I recommend. It's the commercial 10-inch slicer. Uh, check it out. Check the right, out, uh, uh, right, right up out. And remember, if you're going to shop online today, tomorrow, over the weekend, if you'll do me the favor, go to tspaz.com first. Begin your shopping there, and you'll help us out no matter what it is that you eventually buy. Uh, with that, I'm going to wrap up. I will catch you guys again tomorrow with that flashback, and I'll be back again doing it all over again on Monday. We will be live on Monday, Tuesday, and Wednesday next week. Make sure that you have you check out TSPC Live, because that will always tell you the next upcoming live, or get on the Telegram channel, even if you don't want the group and all the discussion. It's cool, but if you don't want it, go to, to the survivalpodcast.com, click on Get Social, 
and you'll find our Telegram channel there. Subscribe to it, and you will hear from me on that channel two to four times a day, maximum four, usually two or three. And you will not miss anything that way. And here's the reason why. That Lavore meat slicer I just mentioned, it's on special today. It is like 17% off. They have plenty of inventory, it looks like. They put their stuff on sale quite a bit. I pretty much wait till they put it on sale to bring it around again because it's that reliable that it will go on sale. I don't want anybody to have to pay full price for it if they don't have to. But there are other things that when I get an alert, it's a re- like a smoking deal, and I'll put that product out at 8 or 9 o'clock in the morning, and I'll record my show around noon. It'll take me to 1, 1.30 to get done with it. I'll publish it at 2, 2.30. And by the time it goes out on the air and you listen to the show, and like, and it's the end of the show, so an hour and a half show, so it's like four, five, six o'clock, and you're like, shit, that's a good deal, and you go, it's sold out. I'm not going to say it's all the TSP effect, but the TSP effect is real. When we feature something, especially on sale, we often sell it out, or we knock the inventory down to where they take the sale away. So that's one more reason to stay connected to us on social media. But again, Telegram's kind of the guarantee if you leave the alert on that you'll know about it. With that, guys, I'll catch you Monday with another episode. Check out the flashback tomorrow. Hey